Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today uh, is a really exciting interview. Now, um, there's four of us on the call. I tried Zoom for the first time. I can't say that I really liked it. Um, I apologize, I really tried to fix the editing of this, but um, sometimes our voices have cut out and the sound might be a little bit off, but I'm sure that you can all manage because the content um, is quite amazing. So Professor Don Wilson from Otago, the University of Otago in New Zealand, um, is a urogynecologist. He's also a researcher and he was involved in the creation of this scoring system, which is used to predict the risk of future pelvic floor dysfunctions based on several major risk factors. So your choice is actually an acronym that stands for the risk factors that you're assessing. Um, we, when we started talking on Zoom, we got straighted, or we got started straight away. So just to explain what the acronym means, U is urinary incontinence before pregnancy, R is race and ethnicity, C is childbearing started at what age, H is height, so the mother's height, O is overweight, which is the weight of the mother or BMI. I is inheritance, which is family history. C is children, so the number of children desired and the estimated fetal weight. Now, I thought it would be even more exciting if alongside discussing this um, tool with Professor Don Wilson, if we had some other clinicians that are using it. So I invited um, an experienced obstetrician and gynecologist to join us. Her name is Dr. Kelly Tatham. She works in the public um, hospital system here. She also works in private practice at a great place in Brisbane called Eve Health. And I invited a physiotherapist who has a lot of experience in this area. So Natalie McConaughey is joining us from New South Wales um, to talk about her use of this system as well. Now, I also wanted to add that the information in this and this tool really should be used within your scope of practice, particularly for physiotherapists, fitness professionals, exercise physiologists. Natalie, as she mentions later on in the podcast, works very closely alongside four obstetricians and gynecologists. So I feel if physios are going to use this system, it really should be in communication with the treating obstetrician. Just before you get to listen, I wanted to say a very quick thank you to the new supporters of the podcast through Podbean. So happy physio and Danielle Bell. So thank you so much again. I hope everybody's enjoying it. So um, today I wanted to talk about the Your Choice tool, which is all about predicting pelvic floor disorders. And Don, you sent me that latest paper in AJOG. And um, wow, that's some heavy stuff. Holy, the predicting models, that stuff is is very far over my head. But so, oh my goodness. I know, um, the whole thing, uh, I think I mentioned ages, has been incredibly 
like really fortuitous. And it, um, it started off with a guy called Jim Dornan. Um, you've probably heard of his son, Jamie Dornan of Fifty Shades of Grey. I gather oh. you got the book. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> we really enjoyed it, joking apart. Anyway, Jim's got a very famous son. Uh, Jim's an obstetrician, a gynecologist from Northern Ireland, and he and I were debating at, at the Iowa meeting in Dublin. Uh, and we were asked to debate for the motion that instrumental delivery should be abandoned in favour of cesarean section. And Jim's an obstetrician, um, fetal maternal medicine specialist, didn't know anything about urogynecology, and we had been corresponding for a good few weeks, months, about you know, what we were both going to say for the debate. And I talked with Jim about um, it would be great if we could identify the at-risk women, and I was talking about at-risk women developing pelvic floor dysfunction, who we could target preventative measures, including cesarean section. But I said we didn't have that means. Anyway, I think I told you that we met up in Dublin at a bar the night before, and we're both comparing notes about what we're going to say. And Jim said, look, I've sorted out a score, and it's called the Wench score. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was actually looking at obstetrical outcome. But anyway, and I said, well, Jim, it's really not a very PC word. It's certainly not in New Zealand. It's a kind of derogatory word for women. And, ah, oh, come on, just toughen up. <laughs> so anyway, he, uh, he spoke, and he's a wonderful speaker. If you ever get a chance to listen to Jim, he's quite amazing. Anyway, we did the debate, we lost the debate, and the credibility with some of my colleagues going back to New Zealand, and we had to change the score. And um, at the same time, I began to correspond with a guy called Ian Milson, because we've got the big database in Prolong. Ian Milson has got the big database in Sweden. So... Jim Dornan, a guy called Bob Freeman, and I began to work together trying to use the odds ratios, okay, the odds ratios from our big epidemiological work to try and see could we predict who's going to get pelvic floor dysfunction. Then we wrote this paper called Your Choice, and it was based on these odds ratios of the risk factors that we had identified from the two big epidemiological studies. And it was things like, you know, had you had urinary incontinence beforehand because you could have a congenital problem and what race you are and how old you are, all the things that we identified. And we published that in the International Urogyne Journal and it was called Your Choice. You may have read that. Mm. And at the same time, the people from the Cleveland Clinic who are amazingly uh, talented at predictive modelling a guy called Eric Nalefsek and Matt Barber. Matt Barber came to New Zealand to speak at a meeting, and I said, well, look, this is what we're looking at. Wouldn't it be good if we could collaborate? And then we started this Your Choice collaboration, so-called. And it was the guys from the Cleveland Clinic who did all the modelling, and it was incredible work, as you may have gathered from that paper. And Ian Wilson from Sweden had some grant funding, and he put us all together in Gothenburg for a couple of sessions where we worked very hard, and then the guys from the Cleveland Clinic went away, and then they came up with this predictive modelling. So um, this predictive modelling 
can tell a woman what her risk is. And that's where it all started. And it was just by chance, me meeting Jim Dorn and meeting Bob Freeman and Matt Barber, and then the folks in the Cleveland Clinic. So, in fact, it's not a score as such, Laurie, though we do use the word score in inverted commas. <laughs> the risk of developing pelvic floor dysfunction. And it's not 100%. You know, it does have an error, but it's as good as most of the predictive things we use currently. And but, it's online now, isn't it? Yeah, or is that what you spent all of that time and work with? Yes. You've created this tool, but then you've designed something that people can use yes, exactly. in order to fill it out? And it's the people from the Cleveland Clinic who developed that very talented right. group. And so they've developed this online calculator, and we've called it your choice online calculator, so you can put in the risk factors and then you can come up with a woman's risk. And I think some of you have been using it and I presented two examples in ages, some are low risk, somebody high risk. But what we don't know really is how that will influence a woman's decision making. And we're currently putting in a grant in Scotland do a study at, at a hospital there, a qualitative study, asking women, pregnant women, asking midwives, asking doctors, asking um, managers what they think about the thing. And we're a grant application which is just about to go in. Can so we get out of that? <laughs> yeah, we still don't know exactly. I mean, we'd, we'd be very keen, anyone who wants to join us, it's going to be qualitative research and it's going to be organised by a woman called Carol Boone. Uh, she's from the University of Stirling and she's got a good, great reputation for doing it. We're going to look at women and uh, ask them the, these questions. Interestingly enough, there was a paper presented at IOGA um, in Vienna. I gave a talk there. There was a group from Germany who actually asked some uh, healthcare professionals, and they also asked women, would it make a difference to your decision-making knowing this risk stratification? Mm -hmm. And they said, no, it wouldn't make a difference. But it's got a few flaws with the study. We've got to ask women and do some proper studies. I think just to add to that, Don, my experience in clinical practice has been, um, you know, when I've uh, gone through your choice with women, I've actually found that it has helped them to make decisions. Um, so, you know, I find that it gives them the opportunity for those who are a bit stressed about pelvic floor dysfunction um, and the implications of that post-vaginal delivery. Um, you know, if they're low risk, I find that it actually helps calm them a little bit to sort of go, oh, actually, you know, that might be an option for me rather than necessarily going straight towards a Caesar. So I actually find in clinical practice um, that it does seem to make a bit of a difference to help women to make a choice. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that we've, we've always thought that it may not influence a woman choosing to have a Caesar, though a very small number it mm. might. It might increase the adherence to conservative treatment like pelvic floor muscle training, like weight, 
after delivery. And we have, we've got a protocol out. It's called the Your Choice Randomized Controlled Trial. And we're going to ask women, would they want to go into it? And this is many years from now. And it's really half the women are going to know what the risk is, and the other half don't. Mm -hmm. It's a pragmatic trial, toss of coin. And then we're going to look at a year after delivery, has made a difference. Are they doing more powerful muscle training? Have they chosen Caesars? Have they done this? Have they done that? And that's the only way to answer the question. So we're going to ask these women, would they be interested to go into a trial? Mm. So that's the other part of this qualitative study. So I think it will be interesting. Mm. Absolutely. At the present moment, we've just put it out there. People are trialling it. We're getting comments from different people. And, yeah, thanks, Natalie. I appreciated your comments. I've tried it. And what the study in Germany didn't do, it didn't ask women other forms of preventative measures. It was just focusing purely on Caesar. Because I think that, I mean, I think I showed examples of that. There was differences of 15% risk. Not quite sure what that means. I'm not sure whether a woman knows what that means. Yes, but I, I think it shifts the conversation from not just vaginal birth versus Caesar to, all right, well, let's then have a look at all of the other things that we're going to do exactly. antenatally and intrapartum and postpartum to actually reduce your uh, risk um, okay. of that dysfunction anyway. So it's a good segue into no matter what kind of birth you have, you're going to be at risk anyway. So let's talk about that and let's manage that. Uh, and that's where I think it's helpful. I absolutely agree, Kelly. I do assessments here at 20 weeks and at 36 weeks. And certainly from the assessments that I do, I see women at 36 weeks who could potentially be higher risk, but there's things that I can implement in that last four weeks that can change those factors. So things like using the EpiNo and things like that. I think even though Peter Dietz's study with the EpiNo didn't show any statistically significant difference, what I'm finding clinically, though, I wonder if we targeted that higher risk group, whether or not that would actually change things. And certainly from a clinical level, I do see that. I've seen it as well. Yep. Yeah. No, exactly. And I think Kelly made a really good point there that I think um, it does raise the whole profile of prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, Absolutely. Yeah, I've talked about this at a couple of college meetings and one that was about three years ago and I asked our colleagues, how many of them, these are mostly all obstetricians, how many of them discuss prevention routinely with antenatal care? And I think it was 10%. Yeah. That comes out. Yeah, I'm giving giving a grand rounds at our public hospital in a couple of weeks um, because... Yes, we've introduced this WHA bundle, the intrapartum bundle to reduce third and fourth degree tears. And I run the Oasis Clinic. So I'm seeing all of the women who are having the third and fourth degree tears. And if anything, I don't think so far, um, I don't think there's been a huge reduction in anything. But my argument is, yes, but if we let that Bangladeshian woman get to turn plus 14 with the four kilo baby, of course she's going to have injury. We need to all be thinking about prevention well before we get to talking about perineal protection in labour. I agree. Um, I think now the shift needs to be not just intrapartum, but pulling it back to beforehand. And we're really missing that at the moment on a on a huge scale. 
And I think, Kelly, one of the interesting things that I've sort of come across with clinical practice Mm -hmm. is that doing assessments at 20 weeks, but then when I'm doing the 36-week assessment, Mm -hmm. there's absolutely the hormonal changes that happen during pregnancy that create um, flexibility within the pelvic floor and within the levators to allow birthing to happen more easily. Um, But there's a small group of women that their measures are not changing. Their GH plus PB is not changing. Their resting time's really high. And what I find is that for those women at 36 weeks, if I can start in t- implementing intervention, mm-hmm. um, you know, look, I have no research to back me up with this, but certainly it does help to change that flexibility within the pelvic mm-hmm. floor to allow birthing to happen more easily. And especially if they are really keen to go towards a vaginal birth rather than going towards Caesar. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I talk to them about, okay, the things we're going to do, we're going to look and exclude a baby being above the 95th centile or a head circumference that's above the 90th. And if that is the case, talk to them about prophylactic cesarean or early induction at 38 weeks. But I say to them, these are the ones that I don't want to put a forceps on at plus one, because if they're if you're having trouble fitting it through your pelvis, you know, we already know um, you've got those risk factors. So you're talking yeah. about early induction for big babies, avoid avoiding the birth of the macrosomic infant. You're talking about perineal massage, um, all of those things and antenatal pelvic floor physio input um, well and truly before they get to, you know, this lady's been pushing for two hours, can you help her? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I agree. So, Don, is this tool meant to be, so the tool's looking at specific risk factors, your choice for each one of those risk factors that I can't remember off the top of my head, but you guys have been mentioning them the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, is I thought I'd read in the paper that you generally have people use this tool at 37 weeks, or are you trying to get people to use it earlier to then be able to intervene earlier? I think that's a good point. Thank you, Laurie. The actual um, paper talked about using it at 37 weeks when you could put in all the factors like the size of the baby, estimated fetal weight, mm-hmm. and the head circumference. Um, and you can use it postpartum too, which is mm-hmm. not that's a wee bit easier ethically because mm-hmm. it doesn't involve all the hoo ha, but trying to push for Caesar. The mm-hmm. trial that we're proposing is that we would actually recruit women in the second trimester. So we'd probably do it after all the first trimester screening tests and discussion. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about doing it around about 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. And you can identify women. Um, you wouldn't have the fetal factors, but you would have things like age and family history and had incontinence and various other risk factors. So you could have a modified score, mm-hmm. score to get people into risk factors. And then it would be repeated again at 37 weeks. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think initially we've talked about at 37 weeks in postpartum, Mm. any trial, uh, in particular, if you want to look at things like muscle training, lifestyles, uh, does it influence weight, would have to be started earlier in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Well, and Nat, I know that Nat does a lot of um, screening at 20 weeks and yeah. seven weeks um, with, and you've used your, your choice yes, quite a uh-huh. bit. Is, is there, is there anything else that should be added to it or should we be looking at something like pelvic floor muscles or um, 
from a physio perspective, I, I actually think that there is the value in um, doing a, an assessment at 20 weeks because certainly we can identify, you know, for instance, women with stress urinary incontinence um, pre-baby, you know, maybe we can actually start to work on strengthening up their pelvic floor um, in pregnancy to actually help prevent problems from actually developing afterwards. I'm not saying it's, you know, I, I don't have any research to back me up with that again, but certainly if we work on their strength in pregnancy, maybe that might help to make the difference. Um, you know, with the vaginal birth, they obviously get that weakening of the muscles, so it may help them. Um, certainly clinically, I do think it does, um, especially if they are wanting to go towards vaginal delivery. Um, there's also another component where I actually think there's some women who are really high tone, um, you know, overactive pelvic floor, um, who in pregnancy are higher risk for problems with um, obstetric anal sphincter injuries and things like that, where actually we probably shouldn't be encouraging them to do lots and lots of strengthening with the pelvic floor. Um, you know, maybe the focus at that point actually needs to be more on the relaxation phase to actually help get more flexibility within the pelvic floor muscles rather than a focus on strengthening. So I do see that there is, um, you know, a place for that multidisciplinary teamwork uh, in pregnancy and not just postnatally women coming in to see physios um, after it's all happened and then we get started with the postnatal rehab. Um, I think that there's a place for the work that we do antenatal as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I've just seen, going back to when do you best use your choice, just this morning I've had... Uh, and I, it's probably selection bias amongst my private patients because I have on my blurb on the website that I have an interest in this. Um, but I have a lot of women that come and see me and in their first trimester they're saying, you know, I'm not sure whether I'll have a vaginal birth or a Caesar. And so I tend to introduce that at about 16 to 20 weeks and I, I bring up the topic and I plug in their numbers on your choice and I essentially say for three and a half kilo baby, all very standard measurements, and I say to them, you know, why don't you go and see our physio at 20 weeks? And then at 36 weeks, we have a similar discussion. And so my, my 36-weeker today said, I've had a cold. I've now got some urine incontinence. How does that change things? So we've gone again and put it into the Your Choose Choice calculator. And she's, again, going to see the physio, but at this point in time is happy that she's going to proceed with vaginal birth and, you know, we'll have a look at growth scans coming up and those sorts of things. So... Yeah, I've used it a couple of times throughout. Yeah, yeah that's right. Excellent. I mean, if we get funding for the trial, I think it would be great, though it's a couple of years ahead. I mm. mean, the other thing is that we've got to be try and be pragmatic because mm. you've got to look at the whole population. And certainly yeah. in New Zealand, we can't afford to do physiotherapy intervention right. antenatally. Yeah. I suppose you could individualise it and also postnatally. It's not like yeah. France. And yeah. it's only a certain percentage of people. So we've probably got to do a trial to try and persuade people to introduce, you know, seeing a physiotherapist antenatally. Mm. And, um, you know, I think that's a different issue. Yeah, absolutely. Think how you're using it. And it's great that you're strong advocates for it. And I mm. think it can only do good. Though some people have said that we might do harm, you know, because it might cause anxiety. Uh, and the trial was built in to look at anxiety levels. Um, 
was it going to be more, do women get more anxious knowing that they're at high risk? Um, so there's a lot of things that we built into. Mm. It just reminds me, I've got to, I did remind the people in Scotland, look, we've got to get started on this. Mm-hmm. And because mm. I'm here in the bottom of the world and they're up in Scotland, I did see them all in June and we have a great, you know, a lot of energy once I go and visit them. And then when I leave, they're involved with a whole lot of mm. other things. Mm. Yeah, we really need to do it. And if you... Yeah. Yeah. I actually find it quite interesting that they um, feel that it would increase the anxiety. I've just sort of... I've got an antenatal clinic that I go through um, all of the pelvic floor, um, obstetric anal sphincter injuries, avulsions, um, the implications of instrumental, all of that sort of stuff. And I actually find from the feedback surveys that I've received from women doing the um, uh, antenatal class and when they've also come in and done their individual assessments is that it actually hasn't increased their anxiety. I've actually found that it's helped to reduce it. I think one of the things, Dom, that I did notice at the ages pelvic floor symposium was there was a discussion at one point about how overseas there were places where um, people were getting to the stage of actually needing a forceps delivery and it was just like oh my gosh I don't want that you know I want to go to a Caesar I don't want that forceps um, I've excuse me for being very blunt about this one, but I actually see that as fairly poor antenatal education that has actually gone into that. Because the thing is, is that I think one of the things that we're all striving for is that informed consent. And with informed consent, we don't get to pick and choose what we inform women of. So they've obviously been informed about avulsion and risk of prolapse with forceps. But Forceps was also got, um, you know, used in a medical emergency too. So I think when you balance that argument out for patients that actually there's a um, good use for forceps in that in a situation where your baby's becoming heart rates dropping and all of that kind of thing and the obstetrician has to just get bub out, I, I don't think when you put it to women like that, no woman's going to choose a pelvic floor over their baby. So yeah. I think that sort of, for me, really highlighted that people are picking and choosing what they teach antenatally and actually we're striving to um, informed consent. We actually need to give all of the information, not just what we choose to give them. Mm, absolutely. It's, yeah. all, it's complicated and say New Zealand and also Scotland, where we're doing the study, that their um, midwifery has got quite a very strong role. Um, we've got LMCs in New Zealand that you know, lead maternity carers. So oftentimes someone that's at low risk, they would not see an obstetrician. Yeah. Same in Scotland too. Mm-hmm. So it also depends on the information that the midwives go to get. And that's yeah. a wee bit different too. So I think when we do this qualitative study, when we're going to ask midwives and obstetricians what they think about it, I think it's going to be really fascinating. Absolutely. The midwife who raised the issue. I mean, when we've introduced it, we've had a fair amount of flight from some colleagues who think we're trying to put up the seizure rate and we try and bring it back and say, no, no, we're just trying to prevent mm. continence. And it may well be that women, you know, just as I said, would work more in powerful muscle training, blah, blah, blah. But when it came to the anxiety thing, I think it was a midwifery colleague who said, look, you might be doing more harm. And that's why we've got a control group. Mm. Mm. And it will be a proper study. 
And um, yeah, I think they, you, yeah, you've inspired me. We're going to try and push on with. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, because I think too we need to stop wrapping women up in cotton wool and thinking they can't handle the truth. Too, women are very informed. They're very educated, um, and we need to give them that respect that actually they can handle the truth. Um, so I think it's important that we be able to give them that education. Yeah. Sure, yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. I'm interested in you, Kelly, actually using it in your practice. It's worth yeah. writing it up, you know. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I've had two instances this morning. So there was that the 36 week visit, and I've had a delivery this morning of someone who saw me at her first visit and said, "I'm just going to have a Caesar." And she had a normal birth this morning, completely intact, so happy and over the moon that I talked to her out of a Caesar. And I hadn't talked her out of a Caesar. I just put it into perspective. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, so I've, you know, already this morning, I feel like those two women have gone away. They've had control or some control and they've had decisions and they've felt empowered to make the right decision for them. And I think that's the key, Kelly. It's the empowerment to make an informed decision um, because I think for, you know, from my perspective, working postnatal, you know, with women in the rehab process, um, one of the things that does come across frequently is the post-traumatic stress and postnatal depression and all of that kind of thing when they're not informed about forceps. And, you know, I find that those levels are much higher in that group of women that feel as though their delivery, they haven't had that empowerment to make a decision. Yeah. Um, but if they're sort of informed beforehand and they know the risks and they go, okay, you know what, I ended up with a forceps. Okay, now what do we do now? Um, yeah. So, yeah. you know, there's a very different perspective that I see postnatally um, okay. between women who have been fully informed to women who haven't. Yeah. And don't you feel that maybe the women who are having higher anxiety levels, knowing that they're at a higher risk factor, may have predisposed issues with anxiety? So how how would you, I don't even know how you would be able to piece that out when you're looking at doing a study, because you then have to take into account all of their past history that's feeding into anxiety. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, this is a whole beauty of a randomized controlled trial, Laurie. Yeah. It's the group would be both groups would be identical. Mm-hmm. So they've yeah. both been exactly the same background for anxiety. There should be no difference yeah. with that. Um, right. And this bit needs to be fleshed out. Uh, this particular aspect of mm-hmm. the trial about how you measure and gauge anxiety. Mm-hmm. The only difference is one group is given information about the online calculator and predicting mm-hmm. risk. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, there's no real difference. So you'll be able to compare. And it's going to be a multi-centre. I mean, it's been a very ambitious study. I mean, we talked about this mm-hmm. about two years ago. And it's going to involve a lot of centres. God only knows where we're going to get the funding from. Yeah. Talk about getting Can you send some my way? We're desperate for funding. Yeah. Well, send the funding my way. I need some. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> we also need it too, Laurie. Um, uh, just to share with you, the first grant application on the qualitative study was turned down. Oh. oh. Uh, and we don't know why. So now we're applying to the chief scientist office in Scotland, CSO, who are actually funding the 25-year follow-up of Prolong there 
quite receptive to the research group I'm part of. But just to let you know, it's not all plain sailing, and there's a lot right. of people. Yeah. Well, see, it's a bit, because it is controversial, you're going to have to get buy-in. And, yes, you can offer it to all of these women in multiple hospitals, but unless you've got obstetricians and midwives and everything that are going to buy in and support yeah. what you're actually doing, I, I think that should be this hurdle is buy-in. Yeah. And yeah. we have to convince people, not just yeah. like your choice model, yeah, but exactly. we, have to, we have to convince obstetric care providers that women do have choice and the default is not always vaginal birth when they go into labour naturally as nature decides kind of thing. I mean, it's very complicated. I mean, some people have said, you know, should we do a thing called a cluster randomised control trial? Mm. You would have groups of midwives, groups mm -hmm. of opticians versus groups of midwives and opticians and other centres because that's what they're going to do with this so-called study appeal and mm. when midwives mm. are teaching pelvic floor muscle training in Britain as part mm. of antenatal care, yeah. we find that it's not possible just for one midwife to suddenly do uh, teaching one day, then the next day not, but they're going to have to you know, do a cluster, so-called, so you get groups of midwives, and that would be interesting too. Mm. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah, well, that's, and that's why I wanted to do a podcast and get yeah. out some of that information out there. But do you find that it's um, often research takes like, what, 15 years for people to find out? So is this somewhat of a quick turnaround for this tool to kind of be spreading? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's um, Kelly had me talk in Auckland. Mm. And you guys have had me talk in ages. Mm. Um, I think we need to do, yeah, you're quite right. It does take a while for research to get out there. We need to do the qualitative study. I suppose that's one of the issues of how do you disseminate information, medical information? And that's quite tricky because I was part of the Cochrane collaboration for many years. And as you know, that it takes a long time. Um, it's worth, if we're going to be... Producing mesh, well, it's easy. You then get a very good-looking person from a pharmaceutical company, a young man, a young woman, to go and tell a gynecologist this is the thing to do. And if you're not using that, you're old-fashioned, and you do a one-to-one -one interview, and they take them out for dinners and blah, blah, blah. And lo and behold, they're all starting using mesh. But when it comes to something like this, there's no funder available. There's no good-looking person going out and seeing them. Mm. Some of the issues with evidence-based medicine, but yeah, I think um, I think we're just got to keep on trying. That's why I'd be quite keen for Kelly and you mm. and Natalie who have been using the thing to letters, yeah. case reports, folk to think about it, quote it. Because yeah. otherwise, um, it's all very well for me to say, "Well, look." And on that first paper we wrote, the Your Choice paper. Um, we were very, very careful to say that we saw it as providing reassurance for women. Yeah. Mm. Just as Kelly said, someone that got the reassurance, hey, look, um, pelvic floor dysfunction is common, but look, I'm not really an increased risk, and I'm actually lower than the average risk. So maybe, you know, I need to do look at other things, but Caesar is not appropriate for me because a small mm. risk. But I think part of the... Oops, sorry. I think part of the antenatal education also needs to be around, actually, we can manage things 
as well post-delivery as well. If things don't go according to plan, let's say a patient does end up with an avulsion um, and they do have problems with prolapse, there, we can manage it. Like it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be the same as pre-baby, but there's things that we can do and there's ways around that we can sort of manage things so that you can still have quality of life. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. That's all just because that's the fear, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, good. Oh, well, thank you so much, Kel or Nat. Was there anything else that you wanted to ask him? No, uh, no, not at the moment. Just keep us in the loop because yeah, I, I will certainly continue. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. You're one of the strong advocates, and you too, Nat. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will continue to spread the word and try and get people to think about that, you know, before we enter birth suite, how yeah. do we prevent things? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a fantastic tool. Yeah, the study is going to start in Glasgow. It's meant to start in February next year. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll just have to try and hopefully get, get the funding and then it'll be interesting for you all to see it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, excellent. And it's great having this multidisciplinary team. It's great. Yeah. yeah. I think just to add to that multidisciplinary team approach, one of the things um, here is that um, the obstetricians here are so busy that they often don't get the opportunity to go through a lot of the pelvic floor information antenatally. So, you know, the opportunity, my initial appointment's an hour, my follow-ups are half an hour. You know, it sort of helps them out a little bit that that is my passion, that is my interest because I can do all the measurements, I can do the your choice, I can hand them the you know information and they can go through all of that with their patients so it does make things a little easier and a bit lighter for them yeah, yeah. kelly's and kelly's um are you still doing hour appointments my my initial appointment is an hour my i have a, a longer appointment at 20 weeks and at 36 weeks to facilitate yeah. discussion yeah yeah done. yeah right. amazing well done you yeah. guys all right, I yeah. all right okay we will let you go Thanks, Thanks very much. Okay. Thanks, Kel. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Thanks, everyone. Bye. Now. Bye. Bye.